we stand in the presence of God's word. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord is God. It is he that made us. We are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. Come into his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name, for the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever, and his faithfulness to all generations. This is the word of the Lord. When Gail and I and our two sons made our first trip to Israel some years ago, we were flying Swiss Air out of Chicago. When we got to Zurich, we had about a three-hour layover there, and when we went to the gate for our next flight into Tel Aviv, we were told that the plane was having mechanical difficulties. We were being put on another plane that was going to make another stop in Geneva. So rather than getting to Tel Aviv in mid-afternoon and having a beautiful sunshine ride into Jerusalem, we got there well after dark and we saw virtually nothing. On our second trip to Israel, I had learned that for us Gentile Christians, Jerusalem should be the last part of the trip. That's where Jesus' life ended, of course. That's the place from which we believe God raised him from the dead. So Jerusalem should be the last stop. We had been in Israel for almost two weeks, and finally the day came for us to go up the hill from Jericho to Jerusalem. And just before we got to that last little rise where you could see the city, our guide, whose name was Jacob, said to the bus driver, pull over, pull over. And the bus driver pulled over beside this highway, and Jacob said, off the bus, everybody off the bus. And we got off, and then he said, one should not go into Jerusalem without singing. We're going to sing, he said, and he taught us a simple but beautiful little tune. And he said, sing, or we're not going another step, sing. And as we sang, we walked just a few feet, and we crested the hill, and you could see the holy city. It was truly remarkable. Dr. Walter Brueggemann, who was here for our Barton Clinton Gordy presentations just last February, has written commentary on this psalm, and he said there is no question about it. This is a hymn for singing as one comes into the city of Jerusalem, as one climbs the Temple Mount to the magnificent temple that Solomon had had built. So let's take a look. The first thing I've underlined is verse number three. It begins with an imperative verb. Know, K-N-O-W, know that Yahweh is El. Just last Monday, a number of our staff here at the church went to Temple Israel for a special presentation. Rabbi Charles Sherman and Temple Israel are kind enough to invite us once a year for a clergy institute. They bring to our city annually an outstanding Jewish scholar, sometimes women, sometimes men, who come and teach at the temple for worship on Friday evening and Saturday morning. They usually have a Saturday late afternoon or evening session, a Sunday school session. And then on Monday, they let us Gentile Christians come and hear their great scholar. And the one we heard this last Monday morning spent about an hour and a half dealing with Genesis 14, where there's an interesting story about Abraham meeting the king of Salem named Melchizedek, and Melchizedek blessing him in the name of God Most High. 
And this rabbi said, we Jews took the name of God from the Canaanites. And we used that name for 600 years. And then one day, Moses saw a bush on fire, not being consumed. And in his deepest heart heard the voice of God saying, go back to Egypt. And when Moses complained that he knew how many charioteers Pharaoh had, how many soldiers he had, and that if he were screaming the name of God with all these other multitude of tribes in the Middle East, il el al, il el al, how would God ever hear him? And God said, I'll give you another name. A name I've never given to anyone else before. Eye Asher Eye. Dr. Amy Jill Levine, a Jewish scholar who teaches in a Christian seminary at Vanderbilt, has said, I prefer the translation, I will be who I will be, get on the road to Egypt. This poet begins, know that that one whose name, Eye Asher Eye, was gradually shortened to four consonants, and when a couple of vowels were inserted centuries later, it could be pronounced Yahweh. This poet writes, know that Yahweh is El. The Lord is God. That one at the burning bush, that one who pounded Pharaoh till he let his people be free, that one who parted the waters, that one who led the people to the same mountain and gave them Ten Commandments, that one who fed them with manna and from springs of water in the desert, that one. Anne Lamott has written that her parents were hippies, anti-war, back in the 1960s, and loudly proclaimed to everyone who would listen, atheist. Anne said, when we ate, nobody prayed. We were atheist. In the first grade, she said, I met a little girl who became my best friend, and I discovered she was a Roman Catholic. And when she invited me to her home, I saw that before they ate, they prayed. I became a believer, she said. It just seemed right to me that before you ate, you should pray. As I got a little bit older, I found myself wondering, what farmer plowed, planted seed, weeded, harvested? What trucker drove? What entrepreneur invested money to build a store, provides refrigerators and freezers and somebody to spritz the produce every morning? How can one ever sit down and eat without praying? She said, when I became an adult, I knew I wanted to be a part of one of these religious bodies, and I belonged to one Presbyterian church for 27 years, she said. My brother... He became a believer, too. He's a Roman Catholic. My other brother, he became an evangelical. So when we're all together, one of us crosses himself, one holds up his hands, but we all pray, she said. We all pray. All three of us had decided that our mom and our dad were wrong. One ought not eat without giving thanks. Second, this poet says that Yah 
Our El is good. Two weeks ago, Hurricane Sandy pounded New Jersey, New York, more than the others. Two days later, I opened my Wall Street Journal early one morning, and inside was an entire page with the Salvation Army. We had them in our paper here as well. The top part of the page showed the devastation when this horrible onslaught of water pounded the New Jersey, New York coast, homes wrecked, electric lines scattered everywhere, a woman alone walking down a street with all this debris around her, and the words were simple. We combat, isn't that a good word for the Salvation Army? We combat natural disasters with the acts of God. There was a time when the insurance industry called hurricanes, tornadoes, earthquakes, acts of God. The Salvation Army says, no, no, those aren't acts of God. Acts of God are carrying food to those who have none, taking bottles of water to those who have none. It's going to visit those who cannot get out, perhaps going to the pharmacy for them, perhaps driving them to the doctor's office if you have gas in your car and they have none in theirs. I would expect the Salvation Army to feel that way because they were founded by a United Methodist minister. The first general in the Salvation Army, its founder was William Booth. He was a Methodist preacher who felt the call of God to go into the poorest neighborhoods in London like a mighty marching army to do the acts of God. God is good. God is not bad ever. Dr. John Buchanan, who's given our Barton Clinton Gordy series here, retired last January 1 from the Fourth Presbyterian Church in Chicago. He's still writing. He's editor of the Christian Century magazine that comes out of Chicago. He's recently written that when he was a little boy, he had one grandmother who never forgot special days. She never forgot Valentine's. No matter how old she got, she always sent him a Valentine. She never, ever forgot my birthday, he said. The card would come, and inside all those years ago was a fresh, crisp $5 bill. The next day, he said, after I'd received my gift from my grandmother, my mother would ask me when I got home from school, did you write to your grandmother? I'd shake my head. Write to her, write to her and thank her. The next day I'd get home from school and my mother would ask, have you written your grandmother? Nope. Write her. About the third day when I came home from school and she asked, did you write your grandmother yet? And I shook my head. She'd say, well, you'll do it now. And she would have the pen and she would have the paper and she would sit there and watch me write a note of thanks. And then Dr. John Buchanan said, I'm not sure my mother ever taught me anything more important and gratitude. It has served me well all of my life and all of my ministry to know that there are people and above and beyond people there is one true God to whom I owe gratitude. Number three, 
right near the end of this poem, there are two very important words. In Hebrew, they are chesed. We write that in English as H-E-S-E-D, but it has a rough breathing mark over it so that it's sort of a chesed. It is the one word used more than any other in the 39 scrolls of the Hebrew Scriptures to describe the heart of God. It's most often translated into English as never-failing love or steadfast love. The other word is emuna, and our synagogue right here in Tulsa preserved this word, congregation, bene, emuna, and it's usually translated as faithfulness. God's faithfulness, our faithfulness. God's faithfulness, God's chesed, continue generation after generation. It's never, ever ending. This reaching from one to the other. The other day I picked up my newspaper and there was a review of a book an autobiography written by Richard Russo. The thing that really caught my attention that morning was that it said, look back, not in anger. And this reviewer said, Richard Russo has become a well-known novelist, and now he's decided to write his own autobiography that he's titled Elsewhere. He grew up in Gloversville, New York, just a village in upstate it's called Gloversville because they made gloves there. Big factory made gloves in Gloversville. And Richard Russo's grandfather worked in that plant. There was a time back there in the late 1920s when most of the people in upstate New York were hardworking folks and they needed work gloves. And on Sundays, they put on fine, fine gloves to go to church and on Friday nights to go to the synagogue. But then the Great Depression came, and many people had no jobs. And those who did could not always afford new gloves. And the glove factory shut down. Richard Russo writes in his autobiography that by the time he was a kid growing up in Gloversville, you could have fired a 12-gauge shotgun down Main Street and not hurt a soul. Nonetheless, he says it was a wonderful place to grow up. It was wonderful. I was an altar boy, he said. Every Sunday was important. In the summertime, I got jobs mowing yards for older people. I made a buck here and a buck there. In the wintertime, I shoveled their sidewalks when the snow fell, and they paid me a dollar or two. I loved it. Even though my father and mother had separated, my father was a compulsive gambler, he writes, and finally my mother had all she could take of that. My mother had nerves, he said. When I was a boy, people said my mother had nerves. I'd hear them say, she has nerves. Today, she would have been diagnosed, I'm sure, as clinically depressed, he said. I would even hear people whispering in the other room that my mother might someday have a nervous breakdown and end up in a state hospital. So I guess I always felt like I was sort of her protector. I had to keep her from having a nervous breakdown and going to the state hospital. When I was graduated from high school, I decided I'd had enough shoveling snow. I wanted to go to Tucson, Arizona to go to college. My mother said she's going too. I 
didn't want her to. I wanted to go to college by myself, but she just started packing up her stuff, and she moved to Tucson with me. And when I finished college and I'd met, was ready to marry the young woman I loved, we had a mobile home and a room for my mother. My wife was as patient as anyone could have asked her to be. Finally, my mother died. This is what I want you to hear. The reviewer said, some people look back if they've had a divorce in the family, if they've had a grandfather who no longer has meaningful work, if they have a mother who's clinically depressed, a mother who's clingy and afraid to let her only son get out of her sight, they look back in anger. Not Richard. He says he learned a work ethic in Gloversville that has served him well, that he knows he needs to write two new pages a day. Write two more pages. Don't quit till you've written two good pages, the best you can write, and get up tomorrow morning. You write two more pages. And he looks back at Gloversville and his years in Arizona and says, you know, it's been a really wonderful life. But he could get this work ethic and he could also have this wonderful sense of gratitude. There were a lot of good people in his life, really wonderful people who made his life richer than it otherwise would have been. We get to make a decision, you see. We really do get to decide about those things. Let me go to number four here. It is he, Yah, our El, who made us. We are his. His people. His pasture. One of the translations I read this week, Dr. Hans Joachim Krauss even translated his pasturage, just to be sure you got the point. Even the pasture is his, that one he leads us into, his pasture. It's all his. Time is his. The breath of life. His ruach, his numa breathed into us. Certainly all that we eat, all that we have, own loan from this shepherd who leads us. We are his. John Kralik was having a bad 2008. A lot of people had a bad 2008. When suddenly we understood that the biggest banks in New York were in real financial trouble. People in our own congregation who had been investing for their retirement years, not buying uranium stocks or anything like that, they were buying Bank of America, they were buying Citigroup, they were buying J.P. Morgan Chase, buying Wachovia, Wells Fargo, General Electric. These companies started slashing their dividends, slashing their dividends. People got worried, very concerned, squeezing their money. Millions of people lost their jobs, and some of them still have no job four years later. John Kralik was one of those. Forty years old, no job, marriage, in splinters. He was despondent. One afternoon, lady decided to take a walk. 
and he just started walking. But he was walking out of town, and he just kept walking, and finally the woods got deeper and deeper, got really quiet, could hear birds, maybe a squirrel running around on the ground, and he sat down thought a long time. And it was as if a voice spoke to his deepest heart saying, okay, John, you can get really bitter at this point. Or you could decide to be grateful for the best of today. Concentrate on today. What's the best thing that's happened to you all day today? He said, I got up and I walked back into town, back home. The new year was beginning. I decided January the 1st, I'm going to think about something, someone for whom I'm grateful. And I'm going to write that person a card and tell him or her, I'm grateful for something you did for me or something you mean to me. And I woke up January the 2nd and I wrote another one. And January the 3rd, I wrote another one. And January the 4th, another one. I wrote 365 cards that year. Then he wrote a book about it. And he said, it changed my life. It changed the way I woke up in the morning. If I wake up thinking, i got to remember now, somebody, something for which I'm really grateful. It just changes the way you live your day. It changed I told you a few weeks ago that Gail and I were in Uppsala in Sweden. We were on a tour bus. The guides suddenly said, okay, we're about to stop for a mid-morning break. There's a wonderful coffee shop here. Get yourself a donut or something if you want, Danish pastry, Swedish pastry here. You can have coffee, hot tea. We'll be back on the bus in 30 minutes. I asked her quietly, where's the cemetery where Dag Hammarskjöld is buried? She said, we don't have time for that. I asked, where is it? She said, the street to the cemetery is too narrow. We cannot take the bus down that street. I said, I'm a runner. Tell me where the cemetery is, please. And she told me, and I said, I will be back in 30 minutes. And I ran. I got to the cemetery. There was a little lady scratching around one of the tombstones with a trowel. I tried to communicate with her. I kept saying the name over and over, Dag Hammarskjöld. I probably wasn't saying it just right to a Swede, but she finally got it on. She motioned to me, and I followed her until I stood there. Because Dag Hammarskjöld was a big and important man when I was growing up, Secretary General of the United Nations, and a very active one. He was flying all over the world trying to negotiate peace. I suspect he would have been at the wall separating Gaza and Israel this morning. I know that during his lifetime, he was en route to one of the tribal wars in Africa when someone who didn't want him to get there shot down the plane he was on, and he and all the others were killed. What a waste. What a tragedy. It was only then that someone discovered, as they were cleaning out his apartment in New York City near the United Nations headquarters, 
that he'd been keeping a diary all these years. Oh, not the kind of, I got up at 6 o'clock and had scrambled eggs. And, not, not that kind. Just every so often he would write a reflection of something that had happened to him, something he was trying to do. But on one page he said, For all that has happened, thanks. And for all that is yet to come, yes. Don't you love that? I read that book of his diary. It's called Markings. And to stand there at his grave and say, I'm so sorry. Somebody shot that plane out of the air. We needed you. We needed you to save for all that is past thanks and for all that is yet to come. Yes. We're all affected and a part of our country, other countries as well, but particularly our own are so devastated as New Jersey, New York have been recently. We United Methodists are always some of the first on the ground and some of the last to leave in these same kind of situations. We've sent group after group into the aftermath of Katrina. In our interpreter magazine at the United Methodist Church recently, as they were talking about Hurricane Sandy, they were reflecting on some of the things that had happened after Katrina. And it pictured one of our African-American pastors down in Slidell, Louisiana. Della Jones was standing there with her hands lifted up over the congregation of this little Methodist church and saying, Hold up your heads. The Lord God is about to do a new thing. And when he does, you just know 